but he uh, critically edited many, many books. We're talking about probably over a hundred for his work. Uh, the end. So he lived in, he was from Syria. And I believe he died in Medina.
Uh, on a mad teaching and students, I subsequently made many additions to it and included many important complementary points. Both lengthy and short notes were then added in accordance with the demands of the context as resulted in a complete book, which I hope will be a benefit to the person. Rasulullah's teaching abilities and activities were an integral part of his noble life. This handbook of training and teaching is therefore addressed to both teacher and student alike. Despite several requests, I was unable to publish this book until now. I began writing it over 30 years ago. This is something you see actually in many of his works. Let's say that I, you know, um, I think it was uh, this book called Qawa'ith Ulum al Hadith. It's also been translated by Imam al Tahanumi. Um, I think it's translated with the actual, like, I think it's called Qawa'ith in Ulum al Hadith or something. It's pretty much the Arabic title. And uh, it's essentially a book on the Hadith methodology of the Hanafis. And uh, Shaykh Abdul Fatah wrote an intro to it. And I think it's in that book. I could be mistaken. But he basically says, I had received this book and I loved it and I wanted to work on it and I wanted to serve it. He's like, and then I never had the opportunity until, alhamdulillah, I was imprisoned in such and such year. And then when I was in prison, I had the time to be able to sit and do the work. And so now I worked on it and alhamdulillah, it's ready to be published now. SubhanAllah. <laughs> These are special people, you know. So he says, I was working on I started it over 30 years ago. Some of his other books, you'll see the same thing. I worked on it over 20 years. I worked on it over 30 years. I had notes and I brought them together over all of these periods of time. Uh, I do not know of anyone who has written on this rare and unique subject in this particular way. Final touches were added to it in order to perfect it. Many an action of the book has been rendered incomplete out of desire for perfection. All praise is therefore due to Allah for His grace and this wonderful opportunity He has conferred upon me. I have divided the book into two. The first part deals specifically with a description of the Prophet ﷺ's personality traits and wisdom. The second part deals with his didactic technique, and I have endeavored to quote a hadith which are not only descriptive and explanatory, but also disciplinary and educational in nature. I have also quoted the source of each hadith. The six sources used are Al-Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, and Nisari, the Tirmidhi, and Ibn Majah. These are the six books of hadith. Therefore, when I have specified that a hadith has been related to Al-Bukhari by Al-Bukhari, I mean that it is related by him in his Sahih. It's an important distinction. Bukhari wrote more than his Sahih. He compiled more than his Sahih. So if, I mean, usually you can assume that if someone doesn't say otherwise, it's from his Sahih. But he's telling you his methodology in the beginning, which he usually does in his books, actually. He does the same in some of the other ones. I have mentioned only their names and not the names of their compilations for the sake of brevity. I provided the name of the book and its compiler with quotations of hadith emanate from a source, not from these six. As teaching methods are dependent upon the didactic needs of the student, a single hadith may therefore reflect multiple teaching methods simultaneously. It could therefore be quoted more than once to illustrate a variety of teaching styles depending on the style under review. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this book beneficial and to accept it from me as good and a pure as a good and pure act in his sight. I mean. May it inspire people to follow in the footsteps of Rasulullah in word and deed. Amen. And this there can only be goodness for us. Allah guides the one who seeks his guidance. He is our sustainer. There is no other sustainer besides him. The conferring of ability is in his hands alone, and he has power over everything. All praises to Allah, the sustainer of the words, and salutations and peace be upon our leader, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, of the Fatah al-Wadda Riyadh, 26th of Muharram, 1416. Just under 30 years ago. And so uh, the book begins. It begins with verses from the Quran. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the teacher. 
Quranic verses reflecting Rasulullah being a teacher. The Quran affirms the fact that Rasulullah is a teacher to the people and to all mankind despite his illiteracy uh, and his life in a desert environment. I personally don't prefer to say that he was illiterate, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I prefer to say that he was unlettered. That he was unlettered. Um, doesn't mean the same thing, more or less. But the connotation of illiterate, in English at least, is usually kind of negative. Right? So if you say that someone's illiterate, it's usually kind of has a little bit of a negative connotation. So I prefer to say that the Prophet ﷺ was unlettered and not that he was illiterate, but nonetheless. Uh, this is the Prophet uh, Allah describes him uh, as, as, as being a teacher. So the one, one verse mentions It is he, Allah, who sent a messenger who was unlettered to, a, to the unlettered ones. He sent a messenger from among them who recited to them his verses, purified them, and he taught them the book and wisdom, although they were in manifest error before this. So what is the role of the Prophet ﷺ being described as? That his role is to teach the people. He recites the verses, and reciting the verses, there's kind of like a reminder. And he also him, he purifies them, that he does whatever he does, and it helps them in purifying themselves in their relationship with Allah. And he teaches them the book, and he teaches them the wisdom, even though they were before that in error. Allah also says, Subhanahu. We sent you to the people as a messenger, and Allah is sufficient as a witness. And He also said, And we sent you to all of the people as a bearer of glad tidings and an issuer of warnings, but most people do not know. Um, you might look at that and you say, Well, that doesn't say that He's a teacher. So we have to broaden, sometimes, our understanding of what it means to be a teacher. This is one of the problems of, uh, of you know, a particular profession. So you know, usually when we think of a teacher, we think of someone who sits in a classroom all day and argues with kids. <laughs> so we think that that's, that's what a teacher is. But, uh, and that is a teacher, of course. But many other people are teachers as well. Like our parents are teachers to us, and our relatives are teachers to us, and our aunts and uncles are teachers to us, and the people who, mentors that we have in our lives, and people whose lessons that we listen to, podcasts that we listen to while we're driving, all of these people in a sense are teachers to us, right? And so when we talk about the Prophet them as a teacher, the fact that he comes and he warns, and he gives glad tidings, is an act of teaching, right? If someone comes to you and they tell you, you know, I don't think you should do this, this is not going to be good for you, and so on and so forth, they've taught you something, right? Is that the ring?
Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and mercy to all the worlds. Carlyle has, has the following to say about the condition of the Arabs. They were a nation which inhabited the deserts. They were totally insignificant for several centuries. But when the Arab Prophet came to them, they became the focus of attention in sciences and knowledge. They increased in numbers after they were a minority. They gained honor after their despicableness. In less than a century, all corners of the world were illumined by their intellects and sciences. So one of the great signs of a teacher, actually, is the teacher's students, right? It's the teacher's students. And that's why we always quote the statement of Imam Qarafi, Rahimahullah, who said, Though that, though that you have the Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who are Jesus, and Allah, Ashabahu, Lakafahu, the Ithbati Nabuwatihi. That if the Prophet had no miracle other than his companions, that would have been enough to establish his prophethood. It would have been enough. If all we saw was his companions, it would have been enough. Let alone the students of his companions. Right? And then the students of the students of the companions. And the civilizations that were born. And the variety of them. And we don't have to look too far to see it. MashaAllah, that's one of the benefits of the American Muslim community is you can go to basically any community space and you can look around the room and you can say, SubhanAllah, like the Prophet really reached all these people. SubhanAllah. And it's really an amazing thing. And brought these people together despite their tremendous differences. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to think that culture didn't really matter that much and that, you know, like we're in America and Muslims in America, we're all like, we're raised here, we're all American Muslims and stuff like that. And, I mean, of course that's true at some level, but culture is really a big thing. I mean, uh, the, more, the more you deal in community, the more you realize it. Like, the Arabs themselves are not one. Right? They're very different, actually. And uh, that alone, when you put the Arabs next to, like, the South Asians, they have their own thing. And then some people, like, they think the Afghans are the same as the South Asians. They're not. Like, it's a whole different people whole different culture, whole different thing, you know? And then you have the Southeast Asians, and you have the Central Asians, and you have the East Africans, and you have the West Africans. I mean, these are tremendously different people. And yet, all of them came together under the banner of Rasulullah And in a relatively short amount of time, you know, and, you know, like not a whole lot of time had passed before Islam spread to all of these places. And despite all of their differences, what is the ultimate unifying factor of the Muslims, no matter where you go? is the sunnah of the Prophet That's the unifying factor. Like people might differ on exactly what generosity is, but they're all going to be generous to their guests because the Prophet made this an issue of Iman. When you go into the masjid, everyone's going to enter with their right foot first. When they go to the rest, every restroom you go to is going to have certain characteristics, we won't detail them. But there will be certain characteristics that you find in every restroom that, that, that Muslims occupy. You know? And subhanAllah, that's part of the, the, the great teaching of the Prophet them that it went to all of these different places. So that's the first hadith. Second hadith, the Prophet them, Muslim narrates in the book of divorce in his sahih, the incident wherein, the incident wherein Rasulullah them, gave his noble wives the choice of remaining with him or separating with him. And he began with Aisha anha, who chose to remain with him. She also requested him not to inform the other wives that she chose to remain with him. So Rasulullah replied to her, 
Allah did not send me as one who causes difficulty to others, nor as one who desires hardship and difficulty for others. Rather, he sent me as a teacher and as one who makes things easy. The point is the end of it, that he said uh, in Arabic, he say, that he said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَمْ يَبَعَثْنِي مُعَنِّتًا وَلَا مُتَعَنِّتًا وَلَكِنْ بَعَثْنِي مُعَلِّمًا مُيَسِّرًا وَمُيَسِّرًا means like, he didn't send me to be difficult and to make things difficult. Right? Because there's, there's, there's both. Sometimes there's people who they themselves might be a little bit easy going, but they make things difficult for other people. There's some people they make things difficult, uh, they themselves are difficult, but they don't put it on anyone else. <laughs> the Prophet is saying, "I'm neither of these things." I wasn't sent to make things difficult people on people, nor am I myself like that. And he was easy going insofar as that was possible. Of course, there's certain stances we take. There's things that we do. There's things that we don't do. So on and so forth. But the Prophet ﷺ, as a general character trait, was very easy going, and this is one of the characteristics also of the Sahaba. The, and, and the, the Prophet ﷺ said about the believer and mu'minun and yinun la yinun. They're very easy going. They're very easy to get along with. You know, uh, we have this false understanding sometimes of religiosity. That religiosity should make you like really difficult. You know, if you want to hold yourself to a high standard, by all means. Hold yourself to a high standard. But you don't have to put it in everyone's face all the time. And you don't have to do that, force that on other people also. Um, of course, there could be some exceptions and stuff. But as a general rule, the believers are very easy going. Very easy to get along with, very easy going. Um, and, and the key is in that how do I hold myself to a very high standard while at the same time maintaining it? That's the beauty of the way of the Prophet uh, Imam Ghazali said Rahimahullah So It doesn't matter the beginning of the hadith She told him don't tell them someone yeah? So Ghazali says by Rasulullah's vague response, by not explicitly and directly, directly reprimanding Aisha, there is an indication uh, that it is desirable for a teacher to be as subtle as possible when reprimanding a student in respect of any weakness in his character. He should display as much kindness as possible, if only because an explicit reprimand destroys the veil of awe and causes the student to become audacious in rebelling against the teacher. It will also lead the student to continue to be insubordinate. Okay. So basically what he's getting at here is that the Prophet disagreed with what Sayyidina Aisha requested. But the way that he responded to her was not like very aggressive or direct. He gave her like a very kind of like clarified the general principle. And if you understood this principle, then you know that I actually, you know, maybe can't do exactly what you asked me to do. But it's, it's very subtle, right? And uh, one of the good things about many Eastern cultures, and some of you may be surprised about this, is that usually there's a, in the Edda there's a lot of subtlety, actually. And you might be thinking in your head, well, sometimes they're like really rough and they're really loud and stuff like that. But actually, outside of when people get angry, in the actual interactions, some, a lot of times there's, it's very subtle. You know, when someone doesn't like something or they don't, they don't want something in a particular way, they might not tell you, for example, 
when you overstayed your welcome. Alright? They're not gonna be like, you're gonna ask them five times and say, Well, if I stay too long, I don't want to stay too long. Every time they're gonna say, No, Alhamdulillah, everything is fine and so on. You just kinda have to know. You have to have a feel for it. Like, okay, now it's actually too long, I need to go, or whatever else it might be, right? So the Prophet in the way that he's responding to her is very gentle, it was very soft, and uh, this is something that ideally, you know, we can do that. The challenge is that sometimes uh, it's not possible with everyone. And he didn't do it with everyone, which we'll see in, uh, as things come. And here he's dealing with his wife, Sayyidah Aisha, who is not only his wife, but she's a very intelligent person. Right? Like, we know so much of our religion came from Sayyidah Aisha. So, and she is known to be like a master of poetry. She was a ma- Many of the knowledges that her father had, she had. And she, she was very intelligent, very insightful. So he knows that he, he can say something very simple to her. And she's going to understand what he's, what he's saying, sallallahu Whereas, like, maybe he has some really harsh Bedouin type person come, you might have to take a different approach, sallallahu We'll see this later. Muslim narrates on hadith number three. Muslim narrates on the authority of Muawiyah ibn Hakim as Sunni, who said, while I was offering salat with Rasulullah, sallallahu While I was offering salat with Rasulullah a person in the congregation sneezed. So I made the following supplication uh, for him. May Allah have mercy on him. When I said this, all the people began staring at me. So you understand the situation, right? Like they're in salat. People are new Muslims. A lot of these people are new Muslims, right? They don't know all of the rules. You're a new Muslim. You don't know like everything that you're supposed to know. So. They get in the salat, they're praying. Someone sneezes in the prayer. So, uh, so in, in the middle of the salat, the companion says to the person, Yerhamakullah. You know, they make dua for the person. Allah have mercy on you. So he says, as soon as I said that, all the people started staring at me. So he sees everyone else in salat, they're all like looking at him through the corner of their eye. So, uh, you know, said, uh, so I said, how great is the affliction of my mother, for she has bereft of me. What is wrong with you people? Why are you staring at me in this manner? So he didn't just like, <laughs> they're still in Salat. <laughs> it's so funny. They're still in Salat. He says it, everyone's staring at him. He gets like worked up about it. Like, Why are you all staring at me like this? You know. So they start hitting their thighs. They start hitting their thighs, basically telling him like, this is not the time to to talk. And when I saw them motioning me to remain silent, I remained silent. When the Prophet ﷺ completed the prayer, he called me. May my father and mother be sacrificed for him. I have never come across a better teacher than him, both before and after him. I take an oath by Allah that he neither reproached me, struck me, nor was he abusive to me in any way. All that he said to me was, in this salat, there should be no speech of humans. All that should be, all there should be, is glorification of Allah, mentioning His greatness and the recitation of the Quran. So no more words. All forms of speech. This is now Sheikh Abdul Fatah. 
All forms of speech apart from praises of Allah and his glorification and recitation of the Qur'an do not are prohibited in Islam. Therefore, replying to a person who sneezes, greets you, asks you a question, etc., will nullify the prayer. Imam Minnawi has written in his commentary of the above hadith. This hadith displays the grand character of Rasulullah which is testified to by Allah himself. It also shows his kindness to a person who didn't know any better and his compassion and beneficence to his followers. The hadith not only teaches us to be kind to an ignorant person, but also to correct him in a cordial and compassionate manner. History bears testimony to the fact that the Messenger of Allah was a teacher par excellence, a cursory glance at the state of humanity before his prophethood, and the transformation he had produced afterwards gives a clear testimony to this. <coughs> Is there any other teacher besides the Messenger of Allah who produced students greater, in greater numbers? who were more rightly guided than the Sahaba and his followers? What was the condition of these people before he came? And how were they transformed after he came? Every single one of these people is a clear proof of the greatness of this unique and matchless teacher and instructor. This reminds us of a statement made by a brilliant jurist. He says, if Rasulullah had no miracle but the Sahaba alone, they would have been sufficient to prove his prophethood. Now I know where I got this quote from. <laughs> it's from this book. SubhanAllah. Anyway, if you have this book or if you read it later on, just in case, uh, what's said in the bottom here is not entirely accurate. It says that it's stated by Imam Qarafi in his book, Al Faruq. Uh, and the book is called actually Al Furuq. Al Furuq. Al Furuq al Fiqhiyah. Subtleties in the law and what the difference between things is. <coughs> there is nothing strange about such a large number of people graduating at the hands of Rasulullah in such a short space of time because he tread a path of collective and joint education with the Sahaba and obliged them to wipe out illiteracy completely. He encouraged them to seek knowledge and commissioned them to eradicate uh, this lack of knowledge. He warned them severely against being lax in this regard and so they began teaching and learning from one another in a very short span of time. You know, one of the things about the way that the Prophet taught his companions and the way that that was done generation upon generation is that it's very powerful. And uh, the way that that looks generation upon generation is not always... Um, SubhanAllah, it doesn't always happen now. Uh, I don't know how to explain this. Like when we read from Imam Junaid, we, we talked about this idea that the person who doesn't take their manners from the people of manners, then they will corrupt anyone who follows them. And, you know, there was a way to it. Like when we, when, whenever we've talked about the hadith of Jibreel, السلام, that Jibreel comes to the Prophet وسلم, and he sits in front of him, and he sits in a very particular way, and he asks them the questions, and he takes the knowledge, and there's like a, there's a tarbiyah, there's a development of the person that comes through the method of learning. And it's really a beautiful thing, subhanAllah, when you see it. But it takes time. 
Uh, I think a lot of Westerners, and it takes time not only from the side of the student, but it takes time also from the side of the teacher. And so the institutions that we have now don't always facilitate that. Because, you know, in like a modern consumer-driven culture, that's very expensive, you know? Like for you to be able to sit with a teacher for eight hours a day, it's very expensive. It's expensive on the teacher, it's expensive on the student, right? But in many of these places, that's what it was. And, um, you know, I'll try not to give away details and uh, make the disclaimer that I don't know the person that I'm about to talk about very well. But I met someone, so, you know, but I met someone recently who took a very traditional route of study for his Islamic studies. And he went somewhere that very few people go to now. And uh, maybe it's okay to give one or two details. Is that because it's a curriculum that's not really, you know, all of the Muslim lands had their curriculums. And, and they were very similar to each other. He sent me the entire curriculum of what he studied. And it's, it's well known, you know, like these are the books that you study and this and that. And there were some differences, of course. Um, but what struck me about this person was that, you know, he, he left the United States and he went to go study. And he literally sat at the, at the feet of the people of knowledge. Oftentimes in gatherings that were like two, three, four students in the, in the class, in the halaqa, right? But there's a curriculum they're going through, and they get through it at the end. But what was really striking about him when I, when I sat with him was like, you sit, and he's a younger person, I sit with him, and I'm like, mashallah, you can see the effects of that educational process on the person. And the way that he sits, and the way that he eats, and the way that he speaks, and the way that he thinks about things. The the adab of like where you say something, where you don't say something, how you. All of it was like, you can see this person took. His, took his knowledge from, from the people, you know? It's like very powerful, subhanAllah, when you, when you see this thing. Um, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq and help us. Uh, but the way that the Prophet Sallallahu produced these people is, is really remarkable. Sallallahu <coughs> Hadith number four. said, one day Rasulullah addressed the people. He praised Allah and extolled him. He then mentioned some groups of Muslims and spoke highly of them. Thereafter he said, what is wrong with some people who do not educate and teach their neighbors? They do not explain to them. They do not command them towards good. They do not prohibit them from evil. Rasulullah was referring to the great right that people have over their learned brothers. Is that the end of the narration? Yeah. What did they do with this translation? Okay, so the hadith is longer, they broke it, they put commentary in between. It's probably Shaykh Abdul Fatah had some comments or something. So, the, so in the beginning part, the Rasul is referring to the great right that people have over their learned brothers and educated neighbors because of the Islamic brotherhood which exists between them in addition to their neighborly relationship. In Islam, the rights of your neighbors are highly emphasized. So basically, you know, they have a group of people in the time of the Prophet Generally, people lived uh, amongst their families or their extended families or their clans and stuff like that. So you might have a portion of Medina where this tribe lives. 
you have another portion where this tribe lives and so on and so forth. So he's saying, how come these people, they're more educated and they're not teaching their brothers and sisters who live next to them? Why is this going on? Uh, and so we have different types of neighbors. Uh, he said those who live next to each other and those who live close enough that they share the same masjid, they share the same school, the same marketplace, so on and so forth. They're also neighbors. Um, so then the Prophet ﷺ continues in the head. It's a very long hadith, that's why I was surprised. But, uh, now we get the rest of it. And what is wrong with some people that they do not learn from their neighbors? So the first side he said, one, some of the, one of the neighbors, they're not teaching the other side. He said, on the other side, they're not learning from the ones who have more. All right? What is wrong with some people that they do not learn from their neighbors? They do not educate themselves through their neighbors. They do not try to understand from them. I take an oath by Allah that people should certainly teach their neighbors, educate them, make them understand, command them towards good, prohibit them from evil, and people should certainly learn from their neighbors, educate themselves, and try to understand from them. If not, I anticipate punishment for them in this world. In this world. SubhanAllah. That's an interesting, uh, interesting little piece right there. Right? Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they, one side should teach the other side, the other side should learn from them. Then Rasulullah descended and entered into his house. While he was gone, some people began saying, Who do you think he was referring to? Someone replied, We think he was referring to the Ash'ariyin because they are very learned people, while their neighbors are uncouth people inhabiting the oases and rural areas. So this, is, this has nothing to do with madhab and ashari and aqidah. Okay, this is a clan in, in, in the area of the Prophet ﷺ in his life. So the ashariyin came to know of this and therefore approached Rasulullah They said to him, O Rasulullah, you mentioned some people in very glowing terms while you derided us. What have we done wrong? The Prophet ﷺ replied, People should certainly educate their neighbors, make them understand, command them towards good, prohibit them from evil. And people should certainly learn from their neighbors, try to understand from them and educate themselves. If not, I anticipate punishment for them in this world. So he repeated it, basically. They said, O oh, Rasulullah, should we make others understand? Should we give them knowledge? So the Prophet ﷺ repeated what he had said to them. They asked the same question again. Should we make others understand? The Prophet ﷺ repeated again what he had said to them. Again, you see this idea that he doesn't you know, like, here's the general idea. Apply it yourself. If it applies to you, it applies to you. If it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to you. But have enough awareness of yourself that this is the idea, so you could go ahead and do it. You know, sometimes people are... Uh, this also happens in a lot of... I don't want to open Pandora's box here, and I'm going to try to prevent it. But this, this happens a lot sometimes in like what we want specifically from religious leaders. You know, we want them to say this, we want them to say that, but they already said it, right? Like, they, they already said it in like a general way. If it applies, it applies, you know? And, and, it's, and that's their comment on it. So he's saying, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, this is, uh, this is what the principle is. If it applies to you, it applies to you, basically. He repeats it, they said it again, he repeats it again, they said it again, he repeats it again, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then, he, then they said to him, give us one year to educate our neighbors. Like, give us a year, basically. We'll, we'll do this, but give us a year. And the Prophet ﷺ gave them this respite of one year in order to educate their neighbors, to teach them, and to make them understand. And the Prophet ﷺ then recited this verse. 
They were cursed, the unbelievers from among Bani Israel, by the tongue of Dawood and Isa, the son of Maryam. This is because they were disobedient and transgressed the bounds. They would not prevent one another from the evil which they committed. How evil is that which they were doing? Is that which they were doing? So one of the things, again, to understand from this is, if someone's doing something wrong, and you tell them that they did something wrong, this is a type of teaching. Someone's not doing something that's good, and you encourage them towards doing that good thing, this is a type of teaching. Right? You tell them it's good if you, maybe if you had a little bit more Quran that you worked with or whatever else. This is a kind of teaching. So it's not necessarily like they're sitting in a classroom and doing everything. But these people have something, and they should be giving it to these other people. So the long line there was something. Um, maybe we'll finish this hadith and then we'll stop. Uh, while explaining this hadith, our respected teacher, Alam Mustafa Zarqa, said in his book, Al Madhul al Fiqh and Aham, we have descendants of Sheikh Abdul Fatah in this community, we have descendants of Sheikh Mustafa Zarqa in this community. Now, may Allah have mercy on them and bless their families and their descendants. So he says, while explaining this hadith, our respected teacher, Alam Mustafa Zarqa, said in his book, Al Madhul al Fiqh and Aham, Displaying shortcomings in teaching and learning is considered to be a collective crime. One who commits such a crime deserves a worldly punishment. History has not recorded a standpoint of this nature as regards the sanctity of knowledge taken by anyone before Rasulullah or after him. Abandoning religious responsibilities is an evil act and is punishable. Teaching and learning are constitutive of these religious responsibilities. Therefore, if a learned person shirks his responsibility of teaching, Or if a Muslim fail to learn the essentials of his religion, then both will be punished. This is because Rasulullah said, seeking knowledge is incumbent on every Muslim. The word Muslim in this context includes both male and female because the command is conditional on a shared attribute, Islam. This includes both male and female. So, you know, to not allow women to go to school, for example, would be a problem. And it would be a position that has not been taken by any major institution of Islamic learning in the entire world, basically. You know, all of the major institutions of Islamic learning have uh, at least branches for men and for women and support the educational men and women. <coughs> I would like to add to what he said regarding the hadith seeking knowledge is incumbent on every Muslim. When Rasulullah made the obligation of seeking knowledge obligatory on all Muslims, he was simultaneously stating that there is no room for ignorance in the Sharia of Islam for one who claims to be Muslim. The first words that were revealed in the, in the Book of Allah were, Read in the name of your sustainer who created, created man from a clot. Read and your sustainer is most kind who taught by the pen, taught man which he did not know. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we greatly enjoy the benefit from this teacher, Prophet who taught all of this to all of these people. And uh, you know, and he encouraged us also to make sure that we understand what he taught us and to convey that to other people. You know, this is a, what's important about this is that it's very important that we understand first. Take the time to understand, you know, and, and of course, and, and there's layers to understanding, you know, understand the idea, understand its applications, understand its exceptions. Now go ahead and teach it to other people. 
and make that part of the culture of the people to, to learn and to understand and to benefit from the teaching of the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq subhanahu wa ta'ala anyone have any comments or questions or anything you'd like to share yes Allah yes do the rights of neighbors apply to non-Muslim neighbors yes in general as a general thing they still have non-Muslim rights over us too we should take them food and Try to talk to them, you know, engage with them, stuff like that, as much as we can. Allah forgive us for our shortcomings in that.